Before we uh, get started, I have a, um, uh, a quick update uh, for you guys. Um, in January of uh, last month, wait, that didn't, make, that didn't come out right. Um, last month in January, uh, we had a, a vision and prayer night. And so um, and we, we gathered here, this, this full house, it was awesome, just praying. Uh, we said uh, the reason why we were calling this meeting was, number one, we do our annual reporting, like where we talk about what we just everything that happened last year in 2011, and then we needed a special meeting to talk about what, what we were going to do as we move forward in 2012. One of the things that we said was, and how I kind of phrased it was, we, the things that we set out to do in 10, at least 10 years as a church plant, the way that we're praying and thought that what, things that God would do, it, um, we thought it, it would take at least 10 years to do these things, and God accomplished them in um, less than two years, and so we were like, we need to pray and ask God what he wants us to do next and one of the things that the vision that God's given us vision not in the sense of like oh vision you know like heavenly thing but in the sort in the sense that we're this is where we're going um is a vision for neighborhoods a focus on neighborhoods this is what we kind of presented to everyone that night to pray about now if you live in the east bay north bay or south bay you see this and you're like uh where are the bridges um <laughs> it's just very san francisco centric here uh now we love East Bay and North Bay, South Bay, and the reason why you don't see those up there is that God hasn't told us to go there yet, okay? So we're just, we're praying still. So if you live there and you've been bummed, uh, which is kind of funny because the bridge is closed, so maybe not that many East Bayers today, but, um, but if you're bummed, you, you saw this, you're here, you're like, man, where's East Bay or where's whatever, where I live? Uh, God just hasn't told us to go there yet. We can't step outside of what God wants us to do. We just don't go because, you know, like, since reality started and in Carpinteria some years ago, there have been people from virtually all over the nation calling, like, can there be a reality here? And, and uh, we're not like a Starbucks where we do demographics. We're like, hey, we should go there. Um, we do, uh, we pray and we ask God, God, where do you want us next? And so God hasn't just, hasn't told us to go East Bay or North Bay or South Bay. We're just waiting on God. So God has given us a clear vision for San Francisco. And so we're going to do that until we hear otherwise, until God does. And we kind of hear some faint whispers that God might be doing this, but we're going to wait on the Lord for that. So, Having said, are you guys cool with that, by the way? Nod, yes? If you're East Bay, nod big. Or South Bay or North Bay, whatever. Okay, good. Um, so this is the vision that we said. We're, our hope was this, to get a, a, um, a uh, neighborhood pastor over each kind of district or area in San Francisco where they're overseeing kind of community groups and raising up new leaders and missionally engaging um, in, in, the, in, their of, in their part of the city. We, we know that San Francisco is broken up into many wonderful districts, and so how do we minister to those districts, and every district has, has their own set of needs, and so how do we do that? And, um, and so that's what we presented, and, and we've been praying, and another thing we've been praying about was space, and uh, last Sunday there was um, a thousand people at church on Sunday, and we're just, we can, we can fit 900, so you do the math. We were just way over capacity, and um, we were also asking, pray for space, pray for a, a solution. We know that we're called to this, the hall, we're called to this part of San Francisco, but pray about something else. And so this um, kind of presented itself uh, three weeks ago. And so I'm going to ask you guys, all of us, to, to meet at Macedonia uh, Missionary Baptist Church on Sutter Street in, um, in, uh, in like Lower Pack Heights between Pierce and Fillmore um, on May 5th, Monday night, May 5th. And this affects you guys more than anyone else. Let me tell you why. Uh, our vision is to, uh, and well, actually not even our vision. We're going to pray and see what God does. We have no idea what God does. But um, our, our hope and our vision is that we uh, move, 
we, we stay Sunday morning here at the Swedish Hall, first and second service, and then we move Sunday night to this location at, on Sutter Street. And this is why. They seat 700 people. And so it looks like we've talked to them. They're excited about it. We're excited about it. But here's the deal. We want to know if this is what God wants. If this is not what God wants, we won't do it. And I think as we all gather, especially you guys, please, that third service-ers or whatever you guys call yourself, um, show up this night, pray. I think we'll sense together as a church, this is what God wants us to do or not. Like, no, this is not what God wants us to do. Did I say May 5th? I meant March 5th. March 5th, sorry. Um, so March 5th, coming up in a couple weeks, uh, please join us at, at this, um, at um, Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church, wonderful historic church in the city. We'll pray for that church, other churches in that area, and go like do a prayer walk. We're kind of treating this as a prayer tour, as you saw in that video, where I look like one of the Geico guys, a caveman. <laughs> Um, so, uh, we're going to be praying there. Everybody cool with that? Please show up, um, March 5th. If you have a Bible, please turn to Genesis chapter 17. Uh, what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to read, uh, a, um, I'm going to read a, a selection of, um, chapters in Genesis 17, uh, 18 and 21, chapter 17, 18, 21, selected passages. They'll be on the screen, um, and uh, you can follow along, probably best just to follow along. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Genesis 17. I will be referring to these passages as we go along. Now, I know I'm going to skip over some, some pretty important stuff like um, circumcision and Sodom and Gomorrah. And you're going, whoa, whoa, I want to know why that's there. Um, that's, that's a part of the Bible that I really want explanation. We'll get, we'll get there. We're going to actually jump back to, uh, to the circumcision passage next week, yay, and... Um, and then, uh, and then we'll, then we'll uh, look at Sodom and Gomorrah the week after that. Very important passages of Scripture. But I really want to focus in on this because it comes up in chapter uh, 17. I really want to bring it to resolve because that's the way that, that, that I really feel like we're going to learn from this as a church. So let me read to you chapter 17, some of 18, and some, the first part of 21. 17, verse 1 through 7. When Abram was um, 99 years old... The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I promised you that this was going to happen, by the way. So there it is. For I have made you a father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout, at, throughout their generations forever, for an everlasting covenant to be uh, God to you and your offspring after you. Verse 15 through 21. And the Lord said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, You shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become, uh, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, "Shall child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child?" And Abraham said, "Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you." God said, "No." But, your, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. 
And I, shall, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him to a, into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom, shall, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. Chapter 18, verse 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. As, uh, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after you may pass on since you have come to your servants. So they said, do as you have said. Abraham went quickly uh, to the tent, told Sarah, quick, three sheaves of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, uh, took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man and said, who, who prepared it quickly? Then he took curds of milk and, and the calf that he had prepared and set, set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. And they said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And now Abraham, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of, the, of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So she laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, because she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. <laughs> Genesis 21. And the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord uh, did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, when he was eight days old and God had, as God had commanded. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me, she said. Would, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? That's awesome. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your wonderful character, the way that you resolve every story, the way, God, that you work in every life. And that it's not in a way that we would deem... Um, that sometimes we would deem even acceptable, things that we would go, there's no way God can do that. There's no way that God works like that, but you, but you work in your own ways, Lord. And so I pray that you would give us a picture, and you would give us a glimpse of your character this morning, that you would teach us about yourself, about your nature, about your worth, and the way that you work, God. I pray that we would decrease, that you would increase, that more of the reality of Christ would be made um, in, uh, real in our lives, and more of the, your ways will be brought into our lives where we surrender and we trust in you. For those of us that do not have faith, would you grant us faith, God? And I need your help this morning to communicate, and I pray that you would help me, Lord. We love you. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is everyone in this text laughing about? 
It seems, as, as you read, as I kind of selected those, those certain uh, story as the narrative was moving forward, that everybody was laughing. Abraham was laughing, Sarah was laughing, and then finally God was laughing. My wife and I um, like to, sometimes when we're at dinner or when we're um, just driving or something, especially when we're driving through the city, we like to look over our lives together and laugh. And laugh at the fact that God has done all of these things in our life. Like we, Ash and I were both, my wife and I were both, um, her name is Ashley, um, we're born in Bakersfield, if you know where that is, um, represent, and, um, and uh, we, grew, we grew up not too far from each other. We met in high school, and we started uh, actually dating in high school. Um, I was a little bit older than her. When she finished college, we got married, and we were content to live in, in Bakersfield our whole entire lives. We had, we had no really thought of, or real thought of leaving. And we look back now, over all these, these years that started there, and now we live in San Francisco, this wonderful, awesome city that, you know, like you're kind of afraid of when you live in Bakersfield, you're like, where are the Walmarts? Um, and you get into the city, and you're like, where are the parking lots and all this stuff? And, and so, but you get here, and you're like, and, and, and we look back at all these things that God has done in our lives, and we like to laugh. We like to go, can you imagine if, if some person walked up to us in high school, we're walking through the halls of South High where we went to school, and like, this guy came up to us and said, okay, um, in 16 years from now, um, you're going to live in San Francisco. You're going to pastor a church, and this is what's going to happen. All these things. And I would, we would laugh. We would laugh at him. We're like, there's no way in the world that would happen. Um, we're from here. That's there. I mean, there's all these things that God has to line up to do that. That's impossible. There's no way that, that can happen. Here, when God tells Abraham that he and Sarah will conceive a child together, when he was 99 years old, he falls down and he laughs. He laughs. He's like, there's no way in the world this can happen. When Sarah overhears these three men, and we know them from the narrative as at least one of them was the Lord. Some of them think that it's the Trinity there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit there. But at least one of them is the Lord. This is a theophany. When, this, this, the, when the Lord appears to Abraham, and Abraham runs and grabs food and grabs milk curdles and like gets a, 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 you know, like a lamb that's, that's slaughtered and gets uh, bread and needs it and like gives them dinner underneath a tree or a lunch underneath a tree, and he's sitting there and he's like, where's Sarah? And as Sarah's in the tent overhearing their speech, they go, okay, this time next year Sarah's going to conceive, and Sarah laughs. But it says she laughs to herself. She does that kind of that, that snarky laugh, that like... Like, you know that laugh of just, that's unbelievable? Like, that what if, like, whatever laugh? Like, psh, like maybe one of those. Maybe a psh. Maybe not so a ha-ha, but a psh. Like, there's no way in the world. And then she says, after I'm worn out and he's old. But then God, like, filters her speech. You know, like, God says, oh, she laughed because is anything too hard for the Lord? But what she's really saying there is she's like, she, she, looks, she looks at her own situation. She's like, there's no way in the world this can happen. And she laughs to herself. And when Sarah, at the good old age of 90, has her first baby, she names him Isaac, which means he laughs or God laughs. Because she says everyone who hears this story is going to laugh. Not laugh like ha-ha funny, but laugh like that's amazing. Laugh like how in the world did that happen? Laugh like this is too good to be true. Everybody in this narrative is laughing. Why are they laughing? The joke actually starts back when we first meet this couple. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings um, for the last several weeks, at least the last six weeks, we've been talking about this couple, Abraham and Sarah. When we first met them, their names were um, Abram and Sarai. From Genesis um, 12 is when we meet them. But from Genesis 1 to 12, if you've been here since September, the narrative has been building. 
and building. And this building, it was actually building quite rapidly. It was building into this impossible situation where all of humanity has turned away from God. They had made a name for themselves. They were going their own way. After the fall, Genesis 3, after the first murder, after the corruption of the entire earth, after the flood, after the whole world joins together to form a religion that is essentially anti-God, the world in chapter 11 of Genesis is left in fragments of what it was in chapter 1 and 2. In the Garden of Eden, everything was perfect. Everything was whole. But by chapter 11, everything is fragmented. Everything is torn apart. And there's this question that hangs over chapter 11. As you read into chapter 12, if we're paying attention to the narrative as it's moving along, it's an unavoidable question if you're reading this. And the question is this. How will God redeem this world and bring justice and wholeness to what was lost? How will God redeem this world? It was so good just nine chapters ago, and now it's unraveling to where everyone's saying, let's make a name for ourselves. We do not need God anymore. We will be our own gods. The, the whole earth is corrupt all over again, and then everyone's language is confused, and they can't even communicate to each other. They can't communicate to each other. How is God going to bring unity here? How is God going to restore here? That's the question as you enter into chapter 12. That's supposed to be the setup for us meeting Abraham and Sarah. That's the setup. Everything is fragmented. Everything is torn apart. And we're just about to meet a couple whom God is going to bring the promises of God through. But like a very good storyteller does, there's one more small bit of tension, one more passing detail that sets up the reader for the paradox of God's initial speech to Abraham. And it is this in chapter 11. Now, Sarai, it's the first time we meet her, Abram's wife was barren. She had no child. Just when you think it couldn't get any worse in chapter 11, what, the, the characters that, that the Bible is just about to focus in on, they let us into a little clue. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Sarah, Abram's wife, is barren. She can't have children. Okay, now we're ready for chapter 12. This was 25 years ago. This was when we first met this couple. Sarah was barren. She couldn't conceive a child. But the paradox is this. The promise of God that we've been chasing for the last several weeks is that God will make Abraham a father of many nations. But the paradox is this. He can't have kids. God is going to make him a father of many nations, but he can't have kids. These two antithetical statements hang over 10 chapters that we've been reading the last several weeks. 10 chapters of the Bible and 25 years of real life. These two paradoxes, these two antithetical statements hang over the text. Sarah was barren. 11.30, chapter 11, verse 30, Abram would be the father of a great nation. These two paradoxes hang over 10 chapters of the Bible. These two paradoxes hang over 25 years of real life. God said that he would do this thing over here. God said that he would bless us and give us children. And you've been barren. And it's been 25 years For us, it's been 10 chapters. They've lived with this. Then God repeats his promise over and over again. God is like, it's almost as if you're just tired of hearing the promise because you're like, this is not going to happen. There's no way in the world that the promises of God are going to be met. But God repeats them over and over again. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Chapter 13. Look toward... Look toward heaven and count the stars. If you are able, so shall your offspring, so shall your descendants be. Chapter 15. I will make you exceedingly numerous. Chapter 17. 
Your name shall be Abraham, which means father of many, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, chapter 17. Now, how does God reconcile these two things, being barren and then a promise of children? How does God reconcile a divine promise and a humanly impossible way to get that promise? A divine promise that God will do these things. God, creator of heaven and earth, will do these things in your life. But you're like, my situation is impossible. This seems to be the setup of many great stories in scripture. A divine promise, a human impossibility. How does God resolve? Here's how he resolves it in our narrative. He approaches, he confronts, and then he resurrects. He approaches, he confronts, and then he resurrects. First, we see that he approaches. In chapter 17, when Abraham was 99 years old, God approached him again. God keeps approaching and approaching Abraham, making his, his way known to him, showing up to him, being there for him. In verse 3, it says, when Abraham knew it was God that, that had approached him, he fell on his face. He went to his knees in adoration. He went to his knees in submission. He went to his knees in worship. And as Abram was on his knees, God spoke to him. Which, by the way, is always a good posture to hear from God. Abraham is on his knees, and God speaks to him. And what does God say to him? I'm changing your name from Abram to Abraham. His name has always ironically meant father, even though he wasn't a father. And God says, even more ironically, I want you to be named a father of many. Not only going to make you a father, but I'm going to make you a father of many nations. I'm going to give you a name. I'm going to put a name on you before it's a reality in your life. Your name shall be called Abraham, for I made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, God says. I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Believe that. You shall be called. I want you to call yourself this. Even though you don't feel like it, even though there's, there's no way you're like, I'm, but I'm not. I'm not that. God's like, that's what I want you to call yourself. I want you to call yourself that. Even though that might not seem like the reality in your life, call yourself Abraham. And I want everybody to call yourself, call you Abraham. Okay, fair enough. This has happened quite a bit. It might seem like a great thing, great promise, but God, he's heard this from God before. But then God gives him the sign of a covenant, which is circumcision, which we'll talk about next week. But some say that Abraham's greatest act of faith was to get circumcised at 99, and I would agree. But then in verse 15, God turns again to talk about Sarah. Okay, so he's had this dialogue with God before. Okay, God, you're going to bless me. Yes, I know. You're going to make me a great nation. I'm going to have kids. Yeah, I have a kid. Okay, you're going to do this. Okay, I get it. But then God turns the subject again to Sarah. And this kind of flips him out a little bit. In verse 15, he starts talking about Sarah, who has been barren. Okay, remember, that's the setting. That's the tension. That's the problem. Who's been barren for all her life. 25 years since he said that they'd have kids, she's still barren. And God says, as for Sarah, your wife, Sarah shall, be, shall, Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. God says, okay, I'm going to give you a son by her. Her name shall be Sarah, which is princess, and I will give you a son by her. And this is what happens. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Then Abraham, he, when, he, when Abraham hears 
that God will greatly increase his descendants, he responds with respect, right? Hey, Abraham, I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, bless you. I'm gonna increase your descendants. And what does Abraham do? He gets on his knees and he, he falls down in adoration. Okay, you're gonna bless me, God. Oh my gosh, you're gonna bless me. Yes, I receive that. Thank you, God. He falls down. When he sees, when he hears that God's gonna bless him, he falls down. When he hears how God will carry out his plan, he laughs. When he hears that God will do it, he's like, okay, I can worship. That's good. I, my knees, yes, God, I submit to that. When he goes, and this is how I'm going to do it, he goes, oh, yeah, right. Uh-huh, sure. Like, it, it's, it's like when we hear that that God's going to bless us, we get that. Like, get, God's going to bless me, yes. But when we hear how God's going to do it, that respect kind of spills over into laughter. See, we love to hear the plans of God. We love to hear that God has plans to bless us. You love to hear, and I love to hear, that God has plans to restore us, plans to make us into the image of God, plans to restore the world, plans to bring about justice and peace and righteousness. We love those plans. Those are great plans. God's saying, listen, I'm going to bless you, and you're like, yes, bless me. I'm going to restore you. Yes, I want to be restored. I'm so broken. Restore me, God. I'm going to bring justice to the world. Yes, God, bring justice. But when you hear how God does it, that's when we have problems. When we hear how God does that, most times we're like, well, I wouldn't do it that way. You're going to restore me? Okay, but I wouldn't restore me that way. I know me. And that's not really how I like to be restored. (laughs) You're going to bless me? Well, I don't really see that as a blessing, God. Do you see, this is what we do. Like, okay, yes, all of us are all on board. We all pile in and on a Sunday morning like, yes, God, we want this. But if I got up and said, this is how God's going to bless you. Now, I'm not the Lord. I don't know. I, I mean, know from his word, but I couldn't go down and go, okay, row one, seat two. This is how God's going to bless you. This is how God's going to bless you. I'm not that sort of, you know, preacher. But anyway, so I'm not, not going to do that. However, I know that he does. And if, but if I told you, if I really revealed to you, this is how God's going to bless you, you'd be like, that's not how I like to be blessed. That's not a blessing to me, Pastor. That's, that sounds like it's work. I don't, I don't really think, like, you know, being blessed is work. That sounds like a lot of things I don't want to do. When God makes bl- plans to bless us, how does he bless us? God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. God blesses those who mourn. God blesses those who are humble. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice. God blesses those who are merciful. God blesses those whose hearts are pure. God blesses those who work for peace. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right. You're like, wait, whoa, whoa, wait, that's laughable. That is not how God blesses. Are you telling me that in order to be blessed, I have to mourn? You're telling me in order to be blessed, I have to be poor and realize that I need him? I don't need anybody. I don't need anything. I just like think God is a really good accessory. Like, I have all this stuff, I have a great job and a great life, and God's like this little accessory I put around my wrist or like around my heart, and just like that, he's just an accessory to the things that I like to do. You tell me that if, for me to be blessed, I have to hunger? This is laughable. This is, how, this is not how you get blessing. You get blessing by going after blessing. We all know that. By going after the things we want to do. But God says, you want blessing? Go after peace. You want blessing? Go after purity. Do you want blessing? Go after humility. This seems counterintuitive. This seems almost silly, laughable. 
See, it's not that God wants to work in our lives that we have a problem with. We all want God to work in our lives. All of us do. It's the how God works in our life that we have a problem with. God, I, I get that you want to work in my life. I get that. I get that you want to give me kids. I get that you want to give me this. But the how, I don't really, I'm not down with the how. That's laughable. We think, I'll become happier this way. I'll become more whole this way. I'll become better like this. And God's like, nope, not like that. It's like this. This is how I want to do it in your life. Now, why is this? Why is it that the things that we think God wants to do in our lives come about differently than we think? Why is it that whenever we go, God, I want you to do this in my life, God has a roundabout way of doing it, always. We go, and, we, and you know that you're not supposed to pray for patience because, you know, things will happen. But, you know, like, you're like, I want patience. God goes, okay, I'm going to set up situations that build in you patience. I want love. God will make you love. Okay, when you pray for love, it's not like you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh, my gosh. I love everyone. Like, I just feel, oh, I love coffee. I love people. I love, my, I love, I love Muni. I love it all. Like, that's not love, Okay. Love is this. You get up and like you don't want to love, but you love. You don't want, you're like, I don't feel love towards you, but I'm going to act in love. So you want, you want these things, you're like, God, I've been praying for love and I hate everybody. That's kind of how it works. You pray for love and God gives you situations where you have to act in love. Why does God do this? Why can't God just rewire our hearts to go, God, I don't want to do that sin anymore. Make me not sin. And make me hate that. God's like, I, I, I actually have made you hate it, but you, but you have a flesh, so I need you to overcome the flesh by doing good. No, I want to like not feel like that anymore. I don't want to like that anymore. It doesn't really happen that way. Why doesn't it happen that way? It's not because God has more thoughts or better thoughts or deeper thoughts than us. It's that his way of knowing, God's way of knowing, His way of doing things is his way. Can you please listen to this? It's not that God has deeper thoughts or better thoughts or more thoughts than us. It is that, but it's not because of that. The reason why God does things this way is because it's unique. He's unique. He goes his own way. He does things his way, not your way, his way. Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. If you guys just got this in your head... Because we think God works like us. God's like, I've, just actually, I've actually put it in the Bible. So you have it in writing. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Look, God, why don't you do it this way? Um, because I don't think, I think different than you. I'm unique. You think like everyone else thinks. You think love is some sort of emotion. You think this is some sort of that. You get that. You think that you can't get pregnant because you don't have the, uh, uh, you know, like you're barren. That's not how I, that's not my thoughts. My thoughts are different completely other. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, if you just can understand that God is unique, he's totally other. If we sit down and debate the fact that, well, I think this should be passed, this bit of law should be passed, I think this sort of this sort of um, way of thinking should be, I think logically, the way that we see this sort of person or that sort of person should be like this. God's like, my ways are different than your ways. I don't get it. God, make it make sense to me. Why does a church have to be structured like this? 
What does life have to be like this? God's like, because my ways are not your ways. I have different ways of doing things. This can, be, this can be applied to everything, marriage, relationships, job, service, success, sexuality, everything. God's ways of looking at sexuality and success and marriage and relationships and money and time are not your ways. They're God's ways. God has a way of wisdom. And God's way of wisdom is so unique to his character that the only way to understand it is to surrender to it. God's ways are so unique that you, you probably won't understand them. You just have to surrender to them. I know that's a bit risky for some of you. It's like, no, I need to understand it first. Explain to me why that makes sense. And I'm like, there comes a point in time where you have to surrender to it. And as Jesus said, when Lazarus was dead to his sister, believe so that you may see. Sometimes it's like that. Sometimes you believe in order to see, not see to believe. That's the kingdom of God. That's the way of God. And so here, when God says, Abraham, I'm going to do this through Sarah, he's like, it's laughable. Like, okay, I get that you want to bless me. I get that. I like it. I, I want to be blessed, God. Blessings are awesome. But the how you're going to bless me is a bit weird. I'm old. She's old. Like, I don't even, I don't even think that's even ha- I mean, Sarah, we'll, we'll get to her in a second. But they're the same type of thing. Sometimes we have to surrender to it. It'd be good to admit today, if you learn anything today, is if you can just admit that you're not God, I think you actually grow a lot in your faith this morning. If you could just walk away and go and look in the mirror in the morning and just say, I'm not God, you will actually grow in your faith a lot. And I think a lot of anxiety will cease. Because our head explodes in different options of what is God doing? Is this, that, that, just surrender. Abraham was in this posture of surrender, but he still laughed. Surrender. My friend Al Abdullah, who's planning a church in Boston, we had a video, but it just wasn't up yet. <laughs> we might show it between services. He's planting the next reality in Boston. And the video that we played, and I, and, and, um, I watched it this last week, it reminded me of the video that we made before we started this church. And... Um, we kind of make videos beforehand, and, and the, 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 the guy who was uh, filming me, he was like just asking me all these questions. I was at Reality in Carpinteria. I was on the stage. I remember it was all, nobody was in there. It was just me and him, and he was just filming. He was like, so explain to me about this process. And I remember sitting there, and it's, it, it's somewhere deep in the internet that I hid, um, but it, that video's around still. And I'm looking at, at the camera like, like I'm scared, kind of like Al looks on that video there, just scared. And I'm like, um... I, I have no idea why I'm doing this. Like, I don't even know. I mean, I know why I'm doing it, but I don't know why God is going to actually, do, why God is doing this. Like, I'm not qualified at all. And I remember these were real thoughts. I'm not qualified. I'm not, I wasn't trained in seminary. I'm not smart or hip or anything that the city is. Like, the most, one of the most educated cities in, on the globe. The one of this, the city, that city. I'm like, I'm not any of those things. God, this does not make sense. I don't know if you know, God, there's a way to plant a church, and it's not supposed to be like this. Like, I had those conversations with God. Like, God, there is a way to plant a church. And this is, I don't think this is the way. Like, you, you're supposed to find this sort of person and that kind of fits this and fits that, and then they go in and do this. I don't understand why you're sending me in. It's laughable. People will laugh at me. Like, I, I had these vivid dreams 
of preaching and then people like laughing. <laughs> or people raising their hand going, um, that's not what that means. I don't think you know, like, or leaving, or <laughs> walking out. Like all these insecure sort of things. That's why I kind of judge you a little bit when you leave in the middle of service. I don't know. <laughs> like all these things. And they were, and, and I had to surrender those to God. I'm like, God, this is not how you do things. And then you start sounding like an Old Testament Bible character. You start sounding like Moses and Abraham and Gideon and like David, like all these people you start sounding like. Because then they have all the same things. Like, God, I, I don't know if you know, um, I can't, I, I'm, not, I'm not qualified. I can't speak. Uh, uh, we're barren. She's old. Like, there's always those things. God's like, yeah, 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 I know, I know. I think I know. I mean, I'm God, I know. I know how to do this. I know what I'm doing. Your ways are not my ways. I'm going to do something to bring about my glory, and you're going to laugh at it, but not in the way you're laughing at it now. This is the way God works. This promise that Abraham received was, no, was so paradoxical that he laughed involuntarily. It like just came up out of him. And then look what he tried to do. He tried to sidestep what is incomprehensible to him and direct God's interest to what was already a certainty, Ishmael. Abraham is trying to dodge it a little bit. He's like, oh, Sarah, yeah, she's old. Okay, listen, God, I already have a son. His name is, is Ishmael, and um, can he live before you? Can he be the heir? Can he, I already have one. We don't have to go through this again. It's been too much pain. It's been 25 years. I already have a son. Let's just bless this guy. God's like, I'm going to bless him, but I'm also going to have a son through Sarah, and he's going to be the one that the promise goes through. Sarah had a similar response when she met God. In chapter 18, God shows up in the form of three mysterious strangers. Abraham and Sarah show them great Middle Eastern hospitality. If you've ever been to the Middle East or Israel, you know about this hospitality. It's wonderful. And they ate, and the angel asked Abraham, where's Sarah, your wife? And he's like, well, she's in the tent. Verse 10. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, should I have this, shall I have this pleasure? Like we said last week, some of the, 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 the rawness of the text gets kind of faded away in, in our English translation. But what, er, what Sarah said was pretty, like, sharp. Was pretty punchy. She has a, she has a little. She's she's pretty spicy. If you kind of re- realize the last couple of weeks, and she's like, after I'm worn out, and my husband's old. I mean, he's like, he's a hundred, or almost a hundred. He's old. Shall I have this pleasure? Now that word pleasure is like, I don't even know we can even physically have sex. That's what that means. Like I don't even know if it's like physically even possible to even like, you know. Now here are the facts. Not only has she been barren her whole life, but Sarah has gone through menopause now. Her ovaries have shut down. This is a double impossibility. Not only am I barren, but I, I'm past menopause. I can't even physically, my, I don't even work anymore, she's saying. I'm worn out. I don't work anymore as a woman. And when Sarah repeats this information in her interior monologue, the word from God is given new meaning. God says this, um, you're going to have a child and this is how Sarah interprets it. And this is what we do too. We kind of grab the promises of God and we throw them into our head. And you know what our head does? It like puts the word of God on trial and says, this is why that's not true. This is why that's impossible. God wants to do this. And we, we take it and you might even hear a sermon. This is, this is God forgive. And we go, oh yeah? Puts it in our mind like, but I did this and that and that. God can't forgive that. 
We grab the promises of God, we throw them into our mind, and we like beat them up. We just like put them in a room and punch them all to death. And we're like, yeah, get out of here, promises of God. There's no way that you can survive in this head. That's what Sarah's doing. She hears the promises of God. God wants you to have, I'm gonna have a, you're gonna have a son next year. Sarah takes those promises of God and goes, um, let me see here, old, worn out, menopause, he's old, we can't even have sex anymore. Promises of God, you just got beat. That's what Sarah does. This is what we do. When we take the promises of God, we pull them into our head, we beat them up, and we're like, psh, could never happen. God couldn't do that. This is what we do. Once your mind gets a hold of the promise and the word of God, it goes to town breaking it down on why it's impossible. Now, our interior monologue is always trying to filter the promises of God with what we deem is possible. What we deem is possible in the realm of reality. But look how God enters into her thought life and defends his word. Look how he confronts her. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? You see how God lovingly filtered through what she said? She actually didn't say that. She goes, "Um, I'm worn out. He's old. We can't have sex. And God's like, why did Sarah say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? She actually said a lot more than that. But God is gracious and kind. He's like, I know what she was saying. Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is how God confronts her. This is how God confronts Abraham because he's in the same place. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he's like, no, you did laugh. (laughs) Like, God just, like, points out our sin. Like, you know what? Are you serious? You're trying trying to bamboozle God. You're trying to, like, like, God, I didn't mean that. He's like, you meant that. He's like, yeah, I meant that. This is what Sarah did. Like, I didn't, I didn't laugh. You notice it laughed to herself. So she can kind of like, like, she can kind of act like no one heard it. God's like, no, I heard it. You laughed. She's like, yeah, I'm caught. Now, I get this laughter. I understand this laughter. This laughter that Abraham had, this laughter that Sarah had in almost, in almost disbelief a little bit, an almost like unbelief, almost like I don't, this is too good. That word, um, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is, too, is anything too, too wonderful, magnificent, awesome? That's what that word means. Is anything too, sometimes even means supernatural. Is anything too supernatural for God? I get this. My wife and I have been married close to 10 years. For about seven, eight of those years, we've been trying to have kids. We've wanted to have kids. We tried to get pregnant. We have, like several other couples that we know that are, are that our dear friends have wanted a child for a very long time, and we've been through all the medical stuff. And we know when the doctors give their little diagnosis, we know all that stuff. We, my wife, has times where she doesn't like to go and, and hear what doctors have to say. So if somebody walked into our home, and my wife wanted made one of those really good home cooked meals that she does, and they sat down, and they said, "Okay, this time next year, Ashley's gonna be pregnant." pregnant. I think I would laugh. I know my wife, I was talking to her about it, and she's like, I would laugh. I'd be like, we would laugh. We get this. We get this sort of laughter, like, we have all the facts. We know how the human body works. That's laughable. And we're like, in our 30s, we're not 100. <laughs> you still age this. You still, they, they live longer, but their bodies age the same way. They were, she was in menopause. Like, that's impossible she was barren, and she, she was past menopause. It's not that we don't believe God, but it's too wonderful. It's almost too good to be true. 
It's almost as if you're walking and someone says it, you're like, okay, that's awesome, but just don't say that because that's a little too good to be true. What's really funny in this situation is that we all assume, and we assume rather correctly that antiquity had no problem believing in an unseen God. And we have a problem today with that, but they had no problem. It seems that everyone in antiquity believed in God or even gods. The only question is, do you believe in the right God? What God do you believe in? But do you see, even in antiquity, in the first chapters of the Bible, in a world where God can drape himself in humanity, show up and eat milk curds with his people. You notice how no one had a problem with that? Like, how are you God? And you're like eating milk curds. See how nobody had a problem with that? See, they assume like God can do that. We would have a problem with that today. But they had no problem. Like, this is the Lord. This is the word from the Lord. This good angel, this is God. This is something that God is telling us. We have problems with that. They had no problems. But you see, even then, in antiquity, they even put limits on what God can do. Even they, even they did. I mean, here's God draped in humanity, eating, eating food with them under a tree, and they're like, okay, Sarah's going to have a, a kid. They're like, that's, that's impossible. Like, even they set limits on God. Even they did. When God was in front of them, they were setting limits on God. Like, I just um, came down, and um, I'm a man, but God, hi, I'm eating with you. You're going to have a son. Like, okay, well, wouldn't you address first the fact that why are you God in here? But they don't address that. They're like, oh, yeah, you're here. This is great. Okay, that's impossible. This just sounds funny. But even then, there was, there was, there's limits. We always, you might be a Christian, you might have been a Christian your entire, you know, we always say that. I've been a Christian my entire life. That's not really true, but anyway. Okay, you, <clears throat> you, might, have been, you might have grown up in the church and, and came to follow Christ on your own. That's probably a better way to say it. But there's still in those things like, yeah, there, there's still limits on God for you. Yeah, yeah, I believe in God. He's great and awesome. I worship God. But there is that, like, that limit. Like, that, God couldn't do that. And this is where they were at. I mean, don't think that you're the only one that finds it hard to believe in God's word. Don't think that you're the only one that reads the promises of God in the Bible and we're like, oh, that one's probably too good. That, 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 I might not understand. It must have some spiritual meaning that I don't know about. Because I don't really know if that like, can really happen. I don't know if I can believe that one. There's still things in the Bible that we're going, that's too extraordinary. You're not the only one who's ever doubted God's word. You're not the first person who has heard a promise of God and read it and like, that's too good to be true. But look how God confronts her doubts. He says, is anything too hard for the Lord? See, this is not a promise to claim, but an attribute of God to embrace. You need to write that down. This is what's so difficult about that verse right there. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We try to make that a promise to claim. That's not really a promise to claim. That's more of an attribute of God to embrace. Now, here's the difference between both of those. When we think it's a promise to claim, we start tagging it on everything. Is anything too hard for the Lord? And so we take the thing that we want, we claim a promise, and we work it out in our minds. And, and it's usually, the way that we work it out, it's always some miracle that pulls us out of debt. It's like, what's going to happen is I'm going to check in the mail. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That person that I have a crush on doesn't even know me, that, you know, misconnections. They're going to turn to Christ and email me, and is anything too hard for the Lord? We, we do that. That's what we do with this. When it's a promise to claim, we always put ourselves in, like, the best thing and go, is anything too hard for the Lord? Look at this. This is what we do with it. This is why this is not a promise to claim. You know what this is? This is uh, an attribute of God to embrace, and this is the difference. When we hear things, when we hear and see like how to get out of a situation, we always think that God wants to get us get out of the situation. Maybe like Abraham going, can Ishmael live before you? Is anything too hard for you, God? That's not what this is saying. 
It's saying, is there, is there anything that you deem impossible that God cannot do? Is there anything hard or difficult in life that God cannot resolve? I mean, he could change any circumstance, it's true. But God's thoughts are not your thoughts. Sometimes, I think many times, the hard thing that God will do is to help us to accept our situations or circumstances and grow through them. He will teach us to to live in our situations and grow through them. Paul the Apostle, the word to him was, my grace is sufficient for you. God, you can do anything. You can change me. You could take this thorn from my flesh. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Is anything too hard for the Lord? We, a promise to claim would mean remove the, the thorn. But an attribute of God is like, God, I'll embrace you in, even in this pain. I'll embrace you even in this circumstance. I'll embrace you even in this difficulty. I will embrace you because you can get me through this. Could God make our lives just as meaningful, fulfilled, and our legacy just as great if Ashley and I can't have children ourselves? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Could God bring me closer to him and more mature in character and love through a situation that I want to walk away from? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Could God really fulfill my life and make a life worth living through sacrifice and love and obedience to his word when I don't even understand it sometimes? Is anything too hard for the Lord? We must be cautious, one commentator writes, that we accept by faith that nothing is too hard for God. We do not begin to dictate to him which hard thing he must do. He tends to have things in mind that go far beyond what, what we are able to ask or even think. When you think, is anything too hard for the Lord, you can't dictate to God the thing that he's going to choose. That's why you have to surrender. The last thing that God does here, and this is where I'll close, is he resurrects. You see, Sarah's womb was twice dead, literally. Not only was her womb dead because she was barren, but her womb was, womb was dead because she had gone through menopause. It's almost as if it's not enough to restore fertility to a woman who was barren. God waits until her ovaries have died. It's not that God makes a barren woman have a child, but God makes a barren woman to wait for her ovaries to die, and then he does something. God couldn't just give Sarah an egg. He had to rebuild her entire body. Like if she just had a 100-year-old body and then an egg, she would die. She couldn't nurse. Her bones would give away. Her womb would, would, would break down. Her abdomen, her back would fall apart. God had to restore her bones, her abdomen, her womb. He had to restore her, her so she can produce milk. This is why she says, who would have thought that I would nurse children? God had to rebuild her entire body. It's almost. It's almost as if God waited for her womb to die in order to resurrect it. It's almost as if God waited for that moment to where everyone else looked around like this could be no, there could be no other explanation here, but God acted. And people are going to laugh because they're going to hear this story and they're going to laugh because this was surely God. Because God had to resurrect my womb from the dead. This is a kingdom principle. This is what everyone knows As you read scripture about who God is, it seems at times this is exactly the character of God that he waits so that everybody knows this is the Lord. When Christ died, 
everybody thought that hope died with him. The hope of a restored kingdom, hope of everything that he had lived his life and ministry for, forgiveness, wholeness, reconciliation, peace with God, all of that stuff died with him. On the road to Emmaus, after Christ had rose from the dead, but it didn't get to a couple of disciples, these people were walking, these couple of these men, and Jesus was walking with them, resurrected body, they had no idea it was him. And they said to him, Jesus is like, so what's all this commotion about? And they go, well, where have you been, man? Like, everybody knows about this. Jesus was crucified. And they said this, we had hoped that he would bring restoration to Israel. We had hoped that he was the Messiah. We had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped, but it died. It's like God does that. He says that unless the seed of the seed falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone, but when it dies. This is counterintuitive to us. We fight to live all the time. When God wants us to surrender. When God wants us to go, when there is no other hope, there's no hope in humanity, there's no hope in anything else, I'm going to put my hope in the Lord. I'm going to fix it squarely upon the person of Christ. We can place our hope in Christ. We can place our hope in Jesus, whom Israel's hope was in, and it died, and then it was resurrected. This is what God does. He resurrects hope. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your, your word, and I pray, God, that I pray that the, the, the dead faith of, of, of many in here would be resurrected from the dead. I pray that the hope of many in here would be resurrected from the dead. I pray that our hope would not be in the thing. Our hope would not be in babies or money or finances or job or a spouse or peace or world peace. Our hope would be in Christ. Our hope would be in God and trust you to work all these things out. We place our hope in the Lord. In Jesus' name.